You're listening to the So What Podcast. I think sola gratia is the most basic. It's the most fundamental. And in some ways, all of the other solas grow out of it and are dependent upon it. Sola gratia says that before God, we don't have a leg to stand on. We are at God's mercy, and therefore we must cry out for God's deliverance from ourselves, from our sin, from Satan. All of these were real enemies in Luther's mind. And welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Well, here on the So What Podcast, we are starting a new series titled The Reformation in honor of the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous nailing of the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, an event that sparked the Protestant Reformation, which forever changed the landscape of Western culture and, most importantly, captured the church's sense of wonder at salvation by faith alone through grace alone. Here with us to begin our new series is Dr. Timothy George. Dr. George is the founding dean and professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. He received his PhD from Harvard and is on the editorial advisory boards of First Things and Books and Culture. Dr. George is the general editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, a 28-volume series of 16th century exegetical comments. And Dr. George is also a prolific author, having written numerous journal articles and more than 20 books, including Reading Scripture with the Reformers and Theology of the Reformers. Dr. George, it is a great honor and joy to have you on the show with us. I'm delighted to be with you today. Now, Dr. George, as you well know, this coming October will represent the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Here on the So What podcast, we have an array of Protestant voices. I share Baptistic convictions, Matt in the Methodist tradition, and Travis the Anglican. You yourself are from the Baptist tradition. So to say that the Protestant Reformation was a significant event in our lives is an uncontested statement, and I suspect it would be the same for many of our listeners. Now, with that said, and with this being the beginning of this new series We'd like to sort of start from the end today and work our way backwards by asking you to help us navigate through a big question. Is the Reformation important to our lives today? Well, thank you for having me on this podcast and for the topic that you've posed. It's a big question you've asked. 
I think I would begin by saying the Reformation is many things to many different people. In the 16th century, it represented a lot of change that was happening in Europe, economically, politically, socially, so forth and so on. The Reformation can be studied in all of these ways as a movement of culture to great benefit. However, as believing Christians, I think it's important to see how the reformers understood themselves, what they thought they were about. How can we get under their skin just a little bit and understand their project? And the one expression I have come upon that I think best describes what the reformers thought the Reformation was about is this one. The Reformation was a movement of retrieval for the sake of renewal. They wanted to cut back to the charter documents of the Christian faith, most notably the Holy Scriptures, but also the writings of the early church fathers. And they wanted to do this not out of any antiquarian interest, but so that the church could be relivened, so that it could come alive in a new and special way in their critical moment in history. And because that project was not completed in the 16th century, and in fact, in some ways it was hardly begun, it means that the Reformation today continues as a movement of renewal within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I'm glad that it does because all of our lives are enriched and our faith is deepened because of it. That's very helpful. Thank you. Walk us through 1517, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, Wittenberg. What's his complaint? What's his motivation? Help us get under his skin. What's the goal? Or does he even at that point know what the goal is? He was in process at that point. And remember, Martin Luther was a Catholic theologian. He was an Augustinian monk, and it was never his intention to leave the Catholic Church, much less to start a brand new church from scratch. He was later accused of having tried to do that. That was not his intention. He was a doctor of Holy Scripture. And every time somebody would challenge him and say, who are you to challenge the tradition of 1,500 years? And who are you to challenge what popes and councils have said in the past? He would go back to the fact that he had been called and set apart, as he put it, as a sworn doctor of Holy Scripture. And so he believed he was compelled by God and by his calling, which, as he pointed out, had been approved by the church and even by the pope, and that this was what gave him authority to speak as a teacher of God's word. So 1517 brought about the crisis that we usually think of as the launch of the Protestant Reformation. It had to do with Luther's protest against the sale of indulgences. And there are many different aspects involved in that. Indulgences were intended to be a mechanism by which the temporal penalty for a sin that had been committed could be removed, could be assuaged through various acts of penance and so forth. And so the very first of the 95 Theses says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant the whole life to be one of repentance. It was a call to repentance that was at the very beginning of the Reformation. And among the 95 Theses, that's the most famous, but I would put right up there with it in terms of significance, Thesis 62. And Thesis 62 of the 95 Theses says, The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation was a Bible movement and it was a gospel movement. 
And the gospel was the gospel of God's free grace revealed in Jesus Christ and exemplified for Luther and the Reformers in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, not all of this was carefully understood and spelled out in great detail in fine print in 1517. It took a while for this to happen, but the engines of reform were already at work in Luther's life, and soon they burst beyond that to cover the whole society and the church itself. That's very helpful, Dr. George. I wonder if you might, while we're talking about the historical context of 1517, contrast this emphasis upon the gospel and the grace of God with the Catholic understanding of grace at the time and how that was associated with the selling of indulgences and Mary and the treasury of merits or the well of grace and what a more biblical perspective on the concept of grace might be that Luther was advocating. Of course, there's five solas that are talked about with uh, in association with the Reformation. So grace alone became one of the foundational truths that came out of this movement. So could you contrast the understanding of grace in the Catholic Church at the time yeah. associated with indulgences and what Luther was pushing back against? There were various streams of theology in the Catholic Church, just as there are today in both Catholic and Protestant churches. One of the streams, the one to which Luther belonged, we might call radical Augustinianism. One way to understand the Reformation is to see it as an acute Augustinianization of Christianity. Augustine, the great church father, had taught about God's grace, particularly in the Pelagian controversy, and Luther often referred to him and kind of built on his work, though not exactly in every detail the same. And so within the predominant, I would say, Catholic theology of grace in the late Middle Ages, scholasticism had played a very important role so that grace was understood in a quantifiable way. And the language of gratia infusa, grace infused, and grace that could be parceled out and then repackaged and perhaps even sold again through the indulgences. This certainly was a common understanding of grace within the Catholic Church, and it was against this kind of, we might say, the abuse of a more genuine Catholic theology, such as that advanced by St. Augustine and others. It was against this abuse and distortion of grace that Luther made his protest. Now, you mentioned the five solas, sola gratia being one of them, by grace alone. Of the five solas, I think sola gratia is the most basic. It's the most fundamental. And in some ways, all of the other solas grow out of it and are dependent upon it. Sola gratia says that before God, we don't have a leg to stand on. We are at God's mercy, and therefore we must cry out for God's deliverance from ourselves, from our sin, from Satan. All of these were real enemies in Luther's mind. And I think it was these enemies, which in some ways he felt the Catholic Church of his day were in cahoots with, and so some of his very strong, virile language comes from that perception. It was against these great enemies, sin, the self as assuaged by selfishness and self-centeredness, and Satan, that Luther felt the need to protest most strongly. So there was a commodification of grace, if you will. Yeah. Practically speaking, at least, in the, yeah, in the Catholic Church, where forgiveness received based upon God's grace could be bought and sold, essentially, and used to assuage some of the afterlife penalties 
of a person or one of their loved ones, which they might be suffering in purgatory. And Luther just tried to cut into that whole system and say, no, this is not the basis of your salvation cannot be bought or sold. Yeah, that's exactly right. In 1517, Luther had not yet given up the doctrine of purgatory, and the 95 Thesis still speaks affirmatively of purgatory, though in a critical way. Luther says, well, if the Pope can control who gets in and out of purgatory, why doesn't he just open the doors and let everybody out? Why do we have to go through the indulgences and what you, I think, rightly call the commodification of grace? Well, this was a process for Luther. These insights dawned upon him the more deeply he delved into the Holy Scriptures. And by the way, he came to this fundamental insight into the gracious character of God through his own struggles, through struggling himself to find God to be gracious, and through, at the same time, a deeper delving into the Word of God, into the Holy Scriptures. And you see this sort of in Thesis 1 on the question of penance. What is penance? Penance is one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, as the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 had spelled them out. And in particular, when Jesus said, repent, quoting there from the Gospel of Matthew, the Latin phrase for penance is penitentium agite. That's from the Vulgate. Luther, however, had just received, not very long before he did the 95 Theses, Erasmus' Greek New Testament. That had been published in Basel in 1516, and Luther was a good student of Greek, not so great of Hebrew. It took him a while to master Hebrew, but he was really good at Greek. And when he read Erasmus' Greek text, he came across this Greek word metonaete, which the Vulgate had translated penitentium agite, do penance referring to some work, some beneficiary activity that one could do. And Luther understood this was a fundamental misunderstanding of what the New Testament and Jesus himself was saying, because do penance does not translate metonaete. It means there must be a change of heart. There must be a conversion. There must be a turning around. There must be a conversion of mind, metonaete. And this led him to understand grace in a very different kind of way as a relational factor between the individual and God, not so much as something one could do, satisfaction that could be made, a pilgrimage you could take, so many Our Fathers you could say, whatever good work was required. But grace becomes the means by which God receives us unto himself through Jesus Christ. And we come to trust in him. That's a key word for Luther, trust. And another key word is promise. What God has promised in his word, we can rely on, we can trust in, we can stake every ounce of our life and all eternity on. This was the fundamental beginning point of the Reformation. Now, with regard to indulgences, was Martin Luther's complaint heard by the Roman Catholic Church? Is that system still in existence today? It's been modified along the way, but it's not been completely revoked. Someone wrote a book a few years ago. Actually, it's my friend Mark Knowles, a great historian. The book was titled, Is the Reformation Over? And I was asked to give an endorsement for it. And so I did. And this is what I said. The Reformation is over only to the extent that it has succeeded. And in some ways, the Reformation has indeed succeeded. And in some ways, it has succeeded even more within Roman Catholicism than it has within certain sectors of mainline Protestantism. But the Reformation is over only 
to the extent that it has succeeded. And therefore, there's still room for reform, both within Protestantism and certainly within Catholicism too. So there still is a system of indulgences explained somewhat differently perhaps and certainly repackaged in a a much more pastorally sensitive way than it was in Luther's day. But that system itself, I would say as a Protestant, still is in need of continuing reformation. So Dr. George, you mentioned the process for Luther several times. How quickly did this pick up steam for him and how quickly did other of the major figures that we hear, you know, Calvin and others, is that a parallel event or did they sort of get on board with what he's doing? Talk our listeners through how that process picks up steam. We've talked about 1517, of course, and we're in 2017, so there's a good reason to do that. However, I want to mention a couple of other dates in Luther's life and then I'll address the wider question you asked. And these are often not so highly touted in general understandings or talks on the Reformation, but they're critically important. Not only 1517, but also 1519. 1519 was the year in which a debate took place between Martin Luther and Johann Eck. Johann Eck was a great Catholic theologian, a professor at the University of Ingolstadt. And he and Luther met in the city of Leipzig, and there had a great debate. And it had to do with authority. It had to do with the authority of popes, of councils, of tradition, and of scripture. And Luther said that he would base his claims for authority on the written word of God. And that was a crucial breakthrough to another one of those solas you mentioned the other minute, sola scriptura. And so I would put Leipzig right along with Wittenberg in 1517, the Leipzig debate of 1519. The year 1520, Luther wrote three very powerful treatises on the freedom of the Christian, on the Babylonian captivity of the church, a letter addressed to the German nobility. And in each of these, he was, as it were, growing by leaps and bounds in this new understanding of God's grace, of justification by faith alone, and of the implications of this for the life of faith and the life of the church. The third date I will mention that will surely be known to most of your listeners was 1521. That was the Diet of Worms. And there Luther was summoned to come before the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, before all the princes of Germany, before a legate from Pope Leo X. They were all there at the Diet of Worms, and Luther was asked to recant what he had written. He said, unless I am persuaded by reason and by conscience, I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. That's a very famous event in Luther's life, often misunderstood, because sometimes we focus on his appeal to conscience as though that were an independent authority. But Luther did not appeal to his autonomous conscience at Worms. He did not say, here I stand alone. He said, my conscience is captivated by the word of God. So again, he was appealing to the scriptures and to the gospel contained in the scriptures. That was a moment of a break with the Catholic Church. There was hardly any going back after that event. Luther was excommunicated. And then some of the fission that began to happen within the Protestant ranks. Is that the point of no return then? The point of no return. You could say that. And you have Luther dividing from Erasmus and the humanists. 
You have Luther dividing in particulars from the reformer of Switzerland, Zwingli, particularly over the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the real presence of Christ in it. And then you mention John Calvin, who comes along a little bit later, but very much in the same train as Martin Luther, but rearticulating the Protestant faith, this time in an urban setting. Luther lived in northern Germany in a rural, somewhat provincial area, but Calvin was an urban reformer, and his reform spread from Geneva, not only throughout Switzerland and southern Germany, but really all over Europe, and from Europe all over the world. So it was, in a way, the beginning of the real spread of the Reformation coming out of the reform of Martin Luther. 